0: And uh, we're gonna engage a scripture reading here in just a moment that we're actually gonna invite our kids to practice and guide us in how to practice on this Family Sunday. But I wanna frame it before we jump into it. And so if you recall, uh, during Lent, we have been sitting with this idea of the selfdom, the rule and reign of myself versus the kingdom, the rule and reign of Christ's kingdom. And we've been remembering that Jesus is not just truth and life, but he is also way. That Jesus is not just a religion that we believe in, but a person whom we follow. And so we want to get in on the way of Jesus, not just the words and ideas of Jesus. And Jesus calls us to be born anew, radically transplanted out of that Soil of the self, the soil of fear and control into the soil of love and trust. But any kingdom, God's kingdom or otherwise, is a great threat to the self. And that's going to frame our whole remainder of the gathering today. There is a great threat to ourselves, and it is the kingdom of God. And this is heavily guarded territory. And so here we come to the climax of the clashing of kingdoms that we've been talking about this entire Lent. It hits its high point in the, cer- the story today. We are going to see a confrontation of two ways of being, two reigns that are on a collision course toward one another, and it will reach his crescendo and lead Jesus to the cross. And so on this Holy Week, we begin turning the corner and looking ahead to what will come not just on Palm Sunday, but on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Monday Thursday, on Good Friday, on Holy Saturday, so that we enter deeply into this story and are prepared for Easter next week. We're going to begin by entering that with our imaginations. And so Sarah's going to come up, lead us into the scene of Palm Sunday, and she'll invite our kids uh, to participate, but I want to ask all of us to participate. Let's be childlike as we come into this together.
1: Yes, okay, I'm going to invite our children to come on down and come sit right here on the floor, so if you are a child, and also if you are an adult that has the heart of a child, you are welcome to come and sit, come, oh, come on, come on, guys, come on, come on, because let me tell you why, why it's important for our, our kids to come and sit on the floor, and why, thank you, while some, um, I see some college students in the room that I'm not gonna call your name, but I know you are still childlike at heart, so you need to come on up. Um, the reason, yeah, everybody, y'all, yeah, y'all, and y'all can face me, can y'all, why don't y'all face me? You don't have to face the, the crowd, which uh, is large today. Um, yeah, the reason why I wanna invite them down here is sometimes when we want to engage our imagination, we need to move locations. And so what we're going to do, what I'm inviting them to do is to move locations so that then they can access their imagination and engage their imagination. So if you feel like it would help you as well, feel free to pick a different posture or to come on down and sit with us. Um, down here, because what that is what we want to do today. We want to engage this scripture with our imagination and with what Jordan just ha- just said, the kingdoms colliding. Like, we want to imagine what this scene was like as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem. So, our kids are actually fantastic at using their imagination. And somehow, you guys, do you want to know what happens as we get older? We just get worse and worse and worse at using our imaginations. And so um, we hope that today, we, our hope for all of our parents and adults in the room is that they can practice today. Because sometimes that's all we need. We need a little practice in using our imaginations so um what we're going to do you guys as i read this scripture over you and over all of us i'm going to ask us to close our eyes in a minute not yet don't close them yet just in just one second what we're going to do is we're going to close our eyes and we are going to imagine that we are there that we are in the crowd and we're going to imagine what do we see As I'm reading this scripture, and you're going to imagine, what do you hear? Maybe even, what do you smell? Think about your senses. And then also, an important one is, how does that make you feel? How does that make your heart feel as you see and hear and smell what what is going on in this passage? And usually, I want to just say, usually when we read from the Gospels, we stand. And today, we are going to sit and um, engage our imaginations and close our eyes, but you are invited to take whatever posture um, will help you engage your imagination. So, okay, are you guys ready? All right, go ahead and close your eyes. And we are going to be reading the good news from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it and he rode along. People kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Great job. You guys can open your eyes. Thank you for joining me down here this morning. You guys can stand on up and head back to your seats. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you, kids. Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray as they return to their seats. Jesus, continue giving us imagination for what you're doing in this text today and how it actually impacts our lives. If this is a new story, let it be palpable for us. And if this is a story we've heard a thousand times, help us to see afresh what is going on here, that we might take one more step into joining the parade of your kingdom. Amen. Amen. On a spring day in 30 AD, a procession entered into Jerusalem. As it came into town, there was at the center of the parade a ruler. This ruler had just entered the scene three years earlier. And he comes into town toward the temple, riding atop an animal. And he comes through the west gate of Jerusalem. He's greeted by cheering and singing crowds, They're calling out for him to be a part of saving them. And at the heart of his procession is a gospel message that the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior's kingdom will bring peace. But this procession was not the procession of Jesus. This was the procession of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate came into town because it was the first day in the week of Passover. It's a day that we now call Palm Sunday. But at the moment... It's just the first day of the week of Passover. Passover is this significant festival in Jewish culture. So I want you to imagine this. What would happen is 150 or so odd thousand people would pilgrimage from all parts of the known world, all to come to Jerusalem. So during Passover, Jerusalem would swell from about 50,000 people, which is what it normally was, to 200,000 people. So I want you to imagine if Atlanta quadrupled in size for a singular event, What would that do to the infrastructure, to the fabric of the city, to the traffic, to the transportation, to the civil and social order, to even finding a restroom or getting anywhere at all? Can you imagine how packed this scene is, how overcrowded it is, how emotionally charged it is as well? Imagine the energy and the intensity, perhaps a sense of overwhelm and chaos, perhaps a growing sense that things might boil over, if order is not brought into this scene. And then on top of that, there's what Passover is all about. Because Passover celebrates the story of the Exodus. It's a story of a people long oppressed by a superpower ruler that now by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm have been brought into freedom. And so as they would come to celebrate that liberation, these 150,000 pilgrims would sing what's called the Hallel, which are certain psalms they would sing from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was their prayer. This was their praise. The Romans... The power of the world are not stupid. And they notice 150,000 people have just streamed into town to celebrate the throwing off of a great superpower that people may become free again. And they put two and two together and realize we're Egypt in this story, right? And they, they realize they better get control of the scene What we have here is an overcrowded, highly charged mass of people with zeal in the air and perhaps political and religious unrest. This is a Boston Tea Party sort of scene. And so the standard practice of the Romans was to bring in a parade of soldiers to keep things under control. They're going to fight fire with fire. They're going to match force with force. And so as the pilgrims arrive into Jerusalem this way, The Romans arrive into Jerusalem this way, and they flood the city with troop reinforcements to ensure things don't get out of hand. They parade into town, led by Pontius Pilate. He's on his chariot. He's got his war horse. He's the governor of the area who represents Roman rule. Now, we know Pilate for the the role he's going to play later this week, right, as he sentences Jesus to death. But first of all, he's just the governor of this area. He's coming into town to keep... The peace, And as he comes, he is the representative of Roman rule. And so what they would do is come to pass the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. They'd say something like, the peace of Rome be with you and also with you, right? And they would come to spread the good news that Caesar Tiberius is Lord and Savior and his gospel is one in which all will be saved. This was the message of Rome. This gives us some insight into how charged it was when early Christians said, Jesus is Lord, and we have a gospel to share. And so with Pilate, in the parade, there are thousands of foot soldiers, there's army, there's swords and spears and golden eagles mounted on poles. And what was underneath all this was a well-known idea that if you get out of hand in Rome, it's not going to end well for you. There were mass crucifixions, There were stories in the air, some of them perhaps lore, of what would happen if you kick back against Rome. It would be brutal and it would be ruthless. And so the message of Pontius Pilate is clear. Don't mess with us. Go have your little celebration, wave your palm branches, celebrate Passover, but don't get any big ideas. The way Roman rule kept its authority was through a political and financial underbelly. They would find people who were loyal to the rule of Rome, and they would give those people extra land. Just here, take an extra bit of land. What would happen then is that with all that extra land, those people would rise to greater prominence, they'd have greater power and wealth, and this ensured that only those loyal to Rome became part of the elite ruling class. Those people were then given control of the temple. The temple was not only the center of the religious world, it was the center of the financial and political world. If you were in debt, the record of your debt was kept in the temple. This gives us some insight as to why Jesus may want to turn some things over in the temple. It's not just only about religious things. It's about a whole system that is oppressing people from their flourishing. And so, through the West Gate, they come, and the parade's coming to that temple. That's where Pilate's going to set up shop, at the center of the city, the center of it all. And the parade is led by Pontius Pilate, and he is atop a warhorse, because... If you want to make sure everyone knows who's in control and who has the power, the universal way to do that, the first move you ought to do is climb up on a war horse. This is well-known in human history. In Rome, there's a statue of Marcus Aurelius. He's on a war horse. In Lisbon, King John I is on a war horse. In Mexico, there's Pancho Villa on a war horse. It's a universal symbol. It works in America, too. Here's George Washington. He's on a war horse. Three miles south of there, south of the Washington National Cathedral, Andrew Jackson is on a war horse. And then there's perhaps the most famous war horse of all, uh, Bucephalus, who is the legendary stallion of Alexander the Great. He's said to have descended from Achilles. He is a mythical, immortal creature. And Alexander would ride this stallion on his way to ruling the entire world, he developed these ruthless ways that were later taken on by Rome and became the way of Rome. And so, Rome it begins to take on this way. Alexander, for his part, was perhaps the most influential person in all of human history with one rival, Jesus. Which brings us to our second parade, because Jesus has come to celebrate the Passover, too. He's come to be a part of this festival. But with Jerusalem so overcrowded, what we learn in our story is Jesus can't find anywhere to stay in the city. The Airbnbs are taken up, the hotels are booked, there's no room for him in the inn again. It's the second time in his life. And so instead, he's staying in Bethany, which is to the east of Jerusalem. So get this. At the same time Pontius Pilate parades eastward, into Jerusalem from Caesarea Maritima. He goes through the front gate on a war horse. Jesus is parading westward from Bethany. He comes in through the back gate, and he's riding a donkey. And why a donkey? What's going on with the donkey? First of all, note this. They're on a collision course toward each other. They're both going to the temple. Two parades, two processions. Jesus is specific that he wants a donkey. He tells his disciples, go get a donkey for me, which I just find really, like, funny. You know, like, the whole scene is just, if anyone asks why you're stealing their donkey, just tell them, the Lord needs it. (laughs) Try this sometime. Excuse me, I need your Tesla for the Lord, right? (laughs) Why is Jesus on a donkey in the first place? everybody else in this parade is on foot except Pilate. Interesting. It's the first time we ever see Jesus riding on top of an animal. In fact, normally Jesus goes to great lengths not to be noticed, right? Somebody finally notices who Jesus is, and he's like, don't tell anyone. He, he doesn't want to be the center of attention, so, the fact that he's doing something counter to his typical way of operating lets us know he's doing something intentionally and he's doing it for a reason. There is a message here. And the message is twofold. Number one, a horse, a war horse, represents war. But a donkey in that time and era was symbolic of peace. We have a way of war, we have a way of peace. And then on top of that, Jesus isn't just riding any donkey. He's riding a nursing donkey that probably has a little baby donkey walking alongside of it. I mean, this scene is pathetic, right? Here is this little baby donkey. Here's Jesus. I don't think this picture does it justice. Jesus' feet are probably dragging on the dirt. He, like, you know he's, it, The whole thing is sort of ridiculous. And I think it's ridiculous because Jesus is making a point. But also, he's fulfilling a prophecy, Look at what it says in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem, which is where our story is taking place. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, which makes everyone imagine the parade of Pontius Pilate. war horses, chariots, soldiers, banners. Righteous and victorious. But then the curveball, he's lowly, He's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then this, And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. There is no avoiding the conclusion that this dual procession, these two parades, these are not happening by coincidence they're not happening just as a form of convenience. This is communication. Jesus has prearranged a counter-protest, a counter-procession, a counter-parade, in order to mirror and slightly even mock what he knows Pontius Pilate is going to be doing. He's making a spectacle of a lesser kingdom. It's what he's going to do a few days from now on the cross, Paul tells us. He disarms the rulers, the powers. He makes a public spectacle of them parading through the streets, right? Jesus is already anticipating what's going to happen here on the cross. And so here it is, the clash of two kingdoms, two ways of being in the world, coming toward each other, two sons of God, two visions for how the world will move forward, the selfdom, the kingdom, Jesus the way embodying another way of being. And both Pilate and Jesus, they're on their way to Zion, but they are not moving in the same way to Zion. Both Jesus and Pilate, they're headed toward the temple, but Pilate's going there to keep things stable, and Jesus is going over there to turn over tables. These are different ways of being in the world. And this brings us to what is ultimately at the heart of Holy Week, which we are about to enter into. You and I, friends, we get to choose one of these ways. We have to pick. They're not only in contrast, but they are in conflict with one another. They're at odds with each other. And Jesus gets to the temple. He confronts the religious, financial, and political powers of the day. He turns over the tables the day after Palm Sunday, and it ends up killing him. Because when you challenge the power of the world, you don't make many friends in high-up places. The showdown's going to reach an inevitable climax five days later on the cross at Golgotha. And this is not only the way Jesus walked for us. It is that. But it's not only that. It's also the way Jesus says, now you take up your cross and follow me. You do it too. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is an intentional descent from the mountaintops to Jerusalem, to the garden, to the cross. It is a way of being in the world that involves suffering and loss and death. It is a way of proclaiming peace. It is a way that ultimately leads to resurrection. And so this is the kingdom of God. This is what it means to say no more to the selfdom, yes to the kingdom. It's another way of being in the world. It's the first and great passion of Jesus that leads to the second passion of Jesus. His first passion is this kingdom. And it leads to the second passion on the cross. This is where God, who is the embodiment of the strong and kind kind of capital L love that we talked about all the way back in the beginning of our story, for those of you who were here in the fall, yeah, the fall, Act One of our story, love starts the world, and now love is heading toward Jerusalem, to the center of it all, and he will be killed there. He's going to encounter and collide with the capital S force of sin, the shalom-shattering counterforce of love, the way of sin and death, those two great enemies of our story that we mentioned way, way back in Genesis 3, they finally caught up to the king. And they collide with the king. And he falls into the fall. And our story here looks bleak. The earth darkens. The veil is torn, but only for three days. But that is to get ahead of our story. Right now, we are in Palm Sunday. Remember when we talked about how the world moved away from the Garden of, Genesis, or the Garden of Eden, for those who were here in the fall? Scripture is at pains. And we're we're almost done. Scripture is it pains to paint a picture that every time, starting in Genesis 3, people move further away from Eden, they move to the east, to the east, to the east, to the east. And now here is Jesus, several odd thousand years later, and he's parading in westward. Do you see this? Jesus is already beginning to set all things right. He's already pushing back on the force that ruins and wrecks the world with a better way, a way that will lay down its life for the sake of others and take it up again in order to live a life that does not end. God's made his promise to set things right, and he gives us the birth of a baby who is now fi- finally full grown. And that baby now, an adult, is ready to show us the way that leads to peace. It is the way of the cross. Perhaps we won't miss it this time. I say that because as he moves into Jerusalem, Jesus says these words over Jerusalem. If you go to the next one for me, Liam. He saw the city. He wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, Jerusalem, it's where we get the word shalom, peace, peace. If you had recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In a world of war horses and weapons and tanks and grenades and stallions and pride and anger and selfishness and control and contempt and unforgiveness, these are the weapons of warfare. Jesus says, if you could see the things that make for peace, I'm showing you another way to live in the world. We say yes to that way of peace as we trade in those lesser tools, that spiral of sin and death, and join a parade that instead says, Hosanna, save us, save us from all that tired game of death and control. Give us a better way of being in the world. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's our confession that Jesus has not only come to save us for the next life, but also to show us in this life a better way of being. And so Jesus on a donkey, dragging through the street his feet, he shows up all the military might in the world, Jesus strong and kind. He paves a better pathway for peace than Pilate could even imagine. And we make the choice, which parade are we going to be a part of in this life? Which flag are we gonna wave? The one that says the powers of the world be with you or the one that says the peace of Christ be with you? Are we gonna wave that flag or are we gonna wave these palm branches representing a different kingdom? And we repent from selfdom's parade where fear runs the world and we start walking in another way, stumbling along with this great parade of Palm Sunday, moving in the westward way that heals the world through the way the truth and the life. Let's pray. Lord, would you show us one place in our life out of alignment with your kingdom? One place where we're moving in the parade eastward, would you help us to trade teams, to switch allegiances, to say, no more of my will. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Show us one place this week where we can agree with you and walk in a better way. In Jesus' name, amen.